My name is Wayne. I'm the pastoral assistant here at City Church. If you have a Bible with you this morning, you can turn to Psalm 23. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you can find Psalm 23 on page 458 of the Pew Bibles in front of you. As we transition out of our Advent series and out of the Advent uh, season and back into our Ephesians series, we're taking a couple of weeks to look at the Psalm, Psalm 23. Last week, Jason took time to look at this same psalm and focused in on the first four verses. And as we looked at those first four verses, we focused on God's presence with us. And we talked about what it looks like for us to grow in awareness of God's presence with us. And Jason also talked about the importance of us slowing down and taking time to be intentional and spending time with Jesus as we enter into this new year. And so this week, we're going to focus more on the, the final two verses of this psalm. And what we're going to be thinking about is what it looks like for God to provide for us. So let's take a look at this passage together. Let me read this for us as we begin to think about how God provides for us. It says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's take a moment and pray as we begin to look at this passage together. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that you call us to gather together as your people to meet with you, to hear from you, and to worship you. And Father, we thank you for your word, that you give us your word to encourage us, to comfort us, and to form us. And so we pray that you would do that this morning, that if we sit here this morning, morning, that you would come alongside us and comfort us. If we sit here rejoicing, that you would remind us of how you're our good provider who gives us reason to celebrate. And Father, if, if we come longing and needing to hear from you, I pray that you would speak directly to us to remind us of your presence and your care for us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As I began to look at this passage this week and began to think about uh, what I wanted to say this morning, one thing that caught my attention really on is a big claim that I found was made about this psalm. The ESV devotional Psalter makes the claim that this is perhaps the most famous poem in the history of the world. That's quite a statement, isn't it? I mean, they're not just saying that this is the most famous psalm or the most famous poem of its time, but they're saying that this is perhaps the most famous poem in the history of the world. And as I began to reflect on that statement and to think about, does that even seem true? I came to the conclusion that there's actually a decent case to be made for that statement even if we just look at our modern culture and how we see this psalm popping up. People who may never set foot in a church have some familiarity with this psalm. In fact, it's often even quoted in pop culture. If we look at our music, we find that artists from Johann Sebastian Bach to Megadeth and from Pink Floyd to Coolio quote this psalm in their music. And if we look at our movies, we find it popping up there as well, where we see this psalm being recited as the Titanic is sinking. Or we find Nightcrawler from the X-Men reciting this psalm 
after losing a team member. We even find this popping up in significant moments in our cultural history, where we see President Bush reciting a portion of this psalm after the attacks of September 11th. So why is this psalm so popular? What is it about the psalm that we just seem to gravitate toward? What makes this psalm the most, possibly one of the most famous, or possibly the most famous poem in the history of the world as opposed to any others? Why has this one become so famous? Well, after making that claim, the ESV, uh, ESV devotional Psalter goes on to say that if this is the most famous poem in the history of the world, then it's justly so, because this psalm delivers deep consolation for the people of God. In Psalm 23, we find deep consolation for all of our longings and our strivings. We find deep consolation in our suffering and in our fear. In Psalm 23, we even find deep consolation as we stare directly into the face of death. Psalm 23 brings us deep consolation for a world that suffers deeply. This past week, I met with one of my clients, and as I was talking to him, he was reflecting on beginning a new year, and he told me that on New Year's Eve, it was a really difficult night for him. In fact, the entire week between Christmas and New Year's was difficult for him. And he told me that was because 2019 was the most difficult year of his life up to this point. He talked about how he had lost many family members and friends who passed away. He had friends who moved away. He experienced disappointment in life as things didn't work out the way he wanted them to. And so on New Year's Eve, he was spending time with family and friends to celebrate. And he began to reflect on the past year and just broke down and began to cry. And he had to remove himself from the celebration. And so instead of spending the evening celebrating as he expected, he spent the evening seeking consolation from his family and friends. Maybe there are some of you this morning that can relate to that. Maybe as you reflect back on the past several weeks or months of your life, what you find is that the painful, difficult, hurtful memories are just too much for you to bear. Maybe you find yourself even this morning feeling hopeless and feeling exhausted from all that you've had to endure over the past years. And if that's where you find yourself this morning, then I want to invite you to come this morning and find deep consolation in this psalm. If you find yourself this morning staring into the valley of the shadow of death, then I invite you to engage with this passage, wrestle with God in this passage, and find that God's goodness and mercy continue to follow you. This morning, whether you find yourself suffering and mourning, or celebrating and looking ahead in excited anticipation of what the future holds. Either way, I invite you to look into this passage as we think about how God provides for us. So let's begin by thinking about how God provides for us in the midst of our suffering. Let's look again at verses 1 through 4. David says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Last week, Jason pointed out that in this passage, the imagery we begin with is imagery of a shepherd and his sheep. We begin with the scene of green pastures by still waters. And then we go to being led down paths of righteousness. 
And throughout all of this, our shepherd is there with us. So this passage begins with the scene of peacefulness and security with our shepherd. But then in verse 4, we find this contrast. We see this change from paths of righteousness and green pastures alongside peaceful waters to the valley of the shadow of death. We go from an image that's meant to convey security and peace to an image that conveys very real and present danger. And so when we look at this first scene, we may, we may find it easy to feel peaceful, to feel secure, thinking about this restful environment that's being described. But as we transition to the valley of the shadow of death, it makes sense that we would feel unsettled. When we think about the valley of the shadow of death, it makes sense that we would even feel fearful. And yet, David, when he's describing this valley of the shadow, the valley of the shadow of death, it seems like what he's alluding to are these deep valleys that exist in the desert in Judah. And if you walk through these valleys, they're so deep that there are these huge shadows, deep darkness. It's difficult to know what's around you. It's impossible to know what danger might be lurking around the corner as you're going through this valley of the shadow of death. And that could mean dangerous animals. It could be humans who are looking to take advantage of the darkness. David's describing here a situation in which we're surrounded by danger. Our very lives are at risk. And yet he says, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. It makes sense to us that we would have no fear when we're, we find ourselves in green pastures by still waters. And it makes sense that we would have no fear as we're being led down paths of righteousness. But how in the valley of the shadow of death can we still claim to have no fear? Well, if we look at these two passages, if we look at these two scenes, what we'll find is that they have two things in common. In both of these scenes, we find that David has the sense of peace. And in both of these scenes, we find that the good shepherd is with him, guiding him. David's claim to fear no evil is not a naive refusal to acknowledge the very real and present danger that's surrounding him. And it's also not an arrogant confidence in his ability to protect himself. But David's claim to fear no evil is his acknowledgement that whether he finds himself in peaceful pastures, along quiet waters, or in dangerous valleys, he knows that his good and sovereign shepherd is with him, at his side, guiding him, protecting him, and providing for him. And so even in the midst of very real, very present danger, he has no need to fear when I was in high school, at one point, I got really sick. What it started off as is unexplained internal bleeding, and I didn't say anything about it for several days. So by the time I got to the hospital, I had lost a significant amount of blood. I ended up spending several days in the hospital, almost a week, as they ran tests, came up with different theories, uh, had no clue really what was going on. And so I was just left there with lots of questions. And they'd present us with different theories. Some of them seemed more manageable. Others seemed life-changing or even life-threatening. And nobody really knew what was going on. And yet, during that time as I laid there with all of this uncertainty, I don't really remember ever feeling fearful. I remember feeling exhausted. I remember feeling that just being awake was too much effort. And I remember feeling restless and just wanting to go home. But I don't remember ever being afraid in spite of all of these theories that were being thrown around. And what I do remember is the presence of the people who were caring for me. 
I remember the nurses who would come and show empathy in spite of the fact that they had to tell me that I still couldn't have anything to eat or drink. And I remember the doctors taking breaks between running tests and between looking up new theories to come and just sit and play video games with me. And so because of their presence with me, I never felt any need to feel fear. Now, I didn't know any of these people. They might not have even been good at their jobs, but because of their presence, I felt assured. I had the sense of peace that I was in good hands because of their presence with me. And it's that same sense of peace that we see in David in this passage. David doesn't know exactly what danger or what threats are coming his way. And there's legitimate risk for him in the valley of the shadow of death. Yet he fears no evil because he knows the shepherd who's with him. And the rod and staff that he refers to, when he's talking about them, he's talking about the tools of the shepherd, the tools that the shepherd would use to guide and protect the flock. And so David knows that there's danger all around him, but he has no fear because the good and sovereign shepherd is with him, guiding him and protecting him from whatever risks he might face. When we find ourselves suffering, God provides for us by reminding us that he's present with us and that he has the power and the authority to continue guiding and protecting us in spite of those threats. When we find ourselves surrounded by danger in the midst of suffering, feeling fearful, we can look to our good shepherd to guide and protect us and to provide for us. And as we come out of this illustration of the shepherd and his sheep, we see that David refers to God as the host of a meal. In verse 5, he says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. God doesn't just guide and protect us through the valley of the shadow of death, but he goes on to prepare a table of feast, of celebration, in the midst of the same enemies that threatened us harm. When we're suffering, God provides for us by reminding us of the hope that we have in him as he protects us and provides for us and then welcomes us to the table of celebration in the face of this danger. And if we continue to look at the passage, we'll see that God doesn't just provide for us in our times of need, but he remains our provider in times of celebration and abundance. Let's look again at verse 5. David says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. So we've now gone from this first scene of a green pasture by still waters to the scene of the shepherd leading us along paths of righteousness to being guided through the valley of the shadow of death. And we arrive at an abundant table with a generous host. David says that God prepares a table for him in the presence of his enemies. He's highlighting that because of God, he can feast and celebrate even in the midst of his enemies because of God's goodness. And he says that God anoints his head with oil. And when he says that, he's referring to a custom that was held in that time where at elaborate feasts, the host would welcome the guests with oil and ointment. And so until this had taken place, the guests had not been properly received. But David says that, God has lavishly welcomed him to the table, and now his cup overflows with goodness. We're welcomed into the scene of great abundance. David's describing something that goes beyond just simply the necessities to survive. He's saying that God has blessed him with so much that his cup can't possibly hold, can't possibly contain all of the good gifts that God has given him. This is a scene of a lavish feast, and still David credits God for the provision of this feast. What we see is that 
in the scene of peace and security, and in the scene of danger and uncertainty, and even in the scene of abundance and celebration, the common theme is that David looks to God as his provider, and he celebrates how God has provided for him. Now, you may wonder why is this even necessary to talk about how God provides for us in seasons of abundance. I mean, it makes sense for us to focus on God's provision in our times of need because that's when we really need to be reminded of the hope that we have in Jesus. But maybe it just seems too obvious to talk about how God provides for us in seasons of abundance and celebration. But what we find too often, what I find too often, is that when we're in seasons of need, even if we initially begin by feeling hopeless and overwhelmed, we eventually reach the point of desperation where we remember to cry out to God and we recognize that it's him and not us who provides for us. But when we find ourselves in seasons of abundance, we're much slower to recognize God as our provider. We become focused on the provision instead of the provider in seasons of abundance. We become fixated on the overflowing cup and we forget about who poured so generously that the cup overflowed. We become focused on the feast without remembering who prepared the feast. And we become convinced that we don't need God to provide for us anymore because we have all the security we need in the riches and abundance that surround us. Sometimes we become focused instead on ourselves. And so we see the abundance and we become fixated on how we have earned what we have. We may have thoughts like, well, I worked hard for this and it's about time that this worked out for me because... I deserve all of these good things. And when we have thoughts like that, we may even become greedy with our possessions. We become anxious when people ask us to give out of our abundance. We worry that if we begin to be generous and give from what we have, then we'll have to fight to regain this abundance again. And so instead of sharing, we hoard our possessions to ourselves. But David reminds us that even in our seasons of abundance, we're called to look to God as our provider to be thankful for all that he has provided for us, and then to trust him to continue providing for us. Over the week of Christmas, we had the opportunity to spend some time with my wife, Christina's family, and that includes our three-year-old nephew. And during the week that we were down there with him, we got to be there for Christmas morning as he had all of these gifts to unwrap and he had all of his toys that he already had running through the room he would run in, open a gift, celebrate that he got this gift, run over and add it to his other toys, bring other toys in. It was a whole elaborate process that you may have seen if you've shared Christmas morning with a child before. But throughout the week while we were there, for the most part, I will say he was pretty generous. He was willing to share. In fact, sometimes he would even share when no one had asked him to, like when he passed out raisins to all of us while he was having his snack. But there were moments where one of us would be playing around with him and we would ask to borrow one of his toys or pretend to sit on his new chair or pretend to try on his new slippers and he would suddenly get really possessive. He could be across the room playing with something totally different, ignoring whatever it was that we were touching, look up and see someone was touching one of his toys and would yell, that's mine! And he would continue yelling until you put down or moved away from whatever it was and then he'd just go back to playing with the thing he was playing with anyway, still disinterested in the thing. And now, when we hear a story like that, it's kind of easy for us to say, well, yeah, of course he did that. He's only three. But the reality is that we do the same. When we find ourselves in seasons of abundance, we often forget that God is the one who provided for us. And so we look at all we have and we think, that's mine. 
And we become suspicious of anyone who threatens what's ours. And so we end up neglecting the people around us to protect the possessions around us. God calls us out of that attitude into an attitude of thankfulness and remembering that he is the one who provides for us. When we're surrounded by our blessings, when we're surrounded by abundance, we're called not to focus on the provision, but on the provider and on what he's done. God calls us not to focus on the oil, but on the one who anoints. Not on the table, but on the host who prepares the feast. Not on the cup, but on the one who pours so generously that our cup can't contain his good gifts. When we find ourselves in seasons of abundance, it's never by our own hands. It's never by our own hard work that we find ourselves there, but it's always through God's generosity and his mercy to us. And so whether we find ourselves in seasons of security or in danger and suffering or in seasons of abundance, we're always called to look to God as our good provider. Maybe as we reflect on this passage this morning, though, you find it difficult to believe that God is really providing for you and that he is a trustworthy provider. Maybe you see this passage and you think, well, yeah, of course King David can trust God as his provider, but what about all of us who don't have the riches of a kingdom? I mean, it's one thing to, to trust at a table prepared for a feast or in green pastures by still waters. And maybe it's even simple enough to trust when it's merely the threat of danger surrounding us. But what about when danger and suffering are a reality for us? Maybe you're wondering, where is this good shepherd and this generous host when I know that I can't afford to pay my bills and to keep food on the table for my family? Maybe you wonder, where's this good shepherd and this generous host when I long for security in my life and yet I still find myself struggling to survive day after day? Maybe you even wonder, where is this good shepherd and this generous host when every day, every week, I hear gunshots in my neighborhood and I know that any one of those could be the one where I get the call that it was someone that I know. If that's where you find yourself this morning, then I don't want to just breeze past that. The point of this passage is not to dismiss our suffering or to try to pretend that it doesn't exist. The point of this passage is not to say that our suffering is not important to God or significant to God. We may wish this was the case, but the point of this passage is not even to say that if we trust God as our provider, that our suffering will all go away. In this passage, we see that David points to God as his provider in all situations, and yet he still talks about existing in the valley of the shadow of death, surrounded by danger. And if we look at David's entire story, we know that there are seasons of his life where death is a very real threat as he finds himself running for his life while people try to kill him. This is a man who has suffered deeply. He's experienced very real danger. And yet he still calls us to look to God as our provider and to trust God as our provider in all seasons. And in verse 6, we'll see exactly what it is that David is trusting God to provide for him. He says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David clings to the hope that God's goodness and mercy will follow him wherever he goes all the days of his life. That's what he's trusting God to provide for him. He doesn't put his hope in the idea that God will continue to bless him with riches and abundance all the days of his life. 
He doesn't put his hope in the idea that God will keep him resting in green pastures by quiet waters all the days of his life. He doesn't even put his trust in the idea that God will always keep him safe from all of the harm that could come his way in the valley of the shadow of death. But David finds his hope and consolation in the fact that whether he finds himself in green pastures, in dark valleys, or at the table for a feast, God's goodness and mercy will follow him wherever he is. That's how David can have confidence in God as his provider, and that's how we can have confidence in God as our provider. God's provision doesn't always mean that we'll have more than enough. It doesn't even always mean that we'll have enough. It doesn't mean that we'll always have comfort or security or safety from harm. But by his provision, God's goodness and mercy go with us wherever we go, whether we find ourselves feasting or mourning. So as we conclude this morning, let's take a moment to look at how God reminds us of his goodness and mercy. David ends the psalm by saying, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And when David refers to the house of the Lord, he's making a dual reference here. So we can see that he is looking ahead to God's coming kingdom, to the anticipation of waiting and existing in that kingdom with God forever. But David's hope and our hope this morning is not just a future hope. David's also talking about gathering in the temple for worship. God provides for us by calling us to gather together as his sons and daughters, as brothers and sisters in his family to worship him. When we gather together each week, we find ourselves mourning and longing for hope with our brothers and sisters who are suffering. And we find ourselves rejoicing and celebrating with brothers and sisters who have found themselves in seasons of abundance. When we gather together as God's family, we have the opportunity to hear about the needs of our brothers and sisters so that we can be the vessels that God uses to care for his people. And that could mean that we take time to be good friends to those who are lonely, just to be a listening ear. But maybe when we gather together, being the vessels that God uses means bringing meals to those who are struggling financially or to those who are just feeling overwhelmed by the demands of life. Maybe it means providing transportation to people who don't have that option. Maybe it means providing a home to our brothers and sisters who are dealing with homelessness. God calls us to dwell together in his house as a family so that he can use us to provide for each other. And when we gather for worship, we're also reminded of God's goodness and mercy as we're reminded of his story each week. We remember that Jesus chose to stay at the table even as he knew that his betrayer sat across from him. We remember that he lived a perfect life on our behalf, the life that we were unable to live, And yet he still allowed himself to be led through the valley of the shadow of death, to die on a cross on our behalf, paying the price for our sins and receiving the death that we deserved. When we gather in the house of the Lord, we're remembered, we're reminded of Jesus' victory over sin and death as he rose from the grave, conquering our sin and conquering the punishment for our sin. When we gather together, we're reminded of the story that most clearly points to God's goodness and mercy as he showed mercy to us by sacrificing his son so that we could be welcomed into his family as his sons and daughters to see and experience his goodness. 
Whether we find ourselves suffering and mourning, whether we find ourselves rejoicing and celebrating, whether we find ourselves fearing or resting, we can turn to Jesus to remember God's goodness and mercy. In Jesus, we find that in both our suffering and in our rejoicing, God remains our good and merciful provider. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that you are so good to us. We thank you for your presence with us. We thank you that you are the one who provides green pastures and still waters, that you're the one who provides protection through the valley of the shadow of death, that you're the one who prepares the table for us, who prepares the feast, and who provides all of it for us. And Father, I pray that you would help us to remember that as we go out into the world, that we would remember that we have no need to fear because you are our provider. We have no need to fear because we know how the story ends. We know that it ends with you being victorious over our sin and over death. Father, I pray that for those of us who are struggling and suffering this morning, that you would help us to see you as our provider. We pray that you would provide in tangible ways. God, I pray that you would help us to grow in our trust of you, that you would help us to remember to acknowledge you when we're celebrating, and that you would help us to be quick to look to you when we're suffering. Father, I pray that we would recognize you as our provider in such a way that those who don't yet know you would want to know you because of how we celebrate your goodness. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.